Uh, we've been in the book of First John, and we're finishing up the, first, the book of First John today. It's been about 12 weeks. It's been a delightful study. And John wrote his book. We're going to see it here in chapter 5, verse 13. He wrote it that we would know that we have eternal life. And evidently, as we've looked through the book, we've seen that there were some who were a part of the church who had left in chapter 2. They had gone out from them, and John says it's because they were not of us. But when these people left, it evidently created quite a, a stir. It was a church split, and you know, I surmise that perhaps the people who remained were wondering were we believing the right things? Did we, did we do the right thing in staying? Or, or should we have gone with those people that left because they had another teaching? And John reminds us in the book that they were false teachers who were of the spirit of Antichrist. He didn't have very soft words to say about them. And he, but he, he was writing to this church and reminding them of all of the things they can know that are true because of the Word of God. And I just created a list here of 22 items in 1 John that we can know for certain that Scripture reveals. I'm not going to give you all of the verses. I'm just going to read them off because we've been going through the book. But listen to this. We can know that we know God, chapter 2. We can know that we're in God, chapter 2. We can know that it's the last hour. We can know the truth. We can know that Jesus is righteous. Then starting into chapter 3, we can know that we will be like Jesus, verse 2. We can know that Jesus came to take away sins. We can know that He Himself is sinless. We can know that we passed out of death into life. We can know that we can know love, chapter 3. We can know that God abides in us. We can know the Spirit of God. We can know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of deception, chapter 4. We can know that we love God's children, chapter 5. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God answers prayer. We can know that we will not live a lifestyle of sin if the Spirit of God is in us. We will be killing sin and becoming more holy. We can know that we belong to God. We can know that the Son of God has come. We can know that He's given us understanding and we can know Him who's true. That's incredible. Just in this little short letter of five chapters, John wants us to have confidence as children of God, in the Word of God, and this Gospel that's revealed so that we wouldn't be shaken by the things around us. We had a conference yesterday. The seminary hosted a conference up at Grace Church in Napa Valley, and it was on the subject of marriage, family, and the culture, dealing with LGBTQ issues in the culture today. And how Christians should respond to those things. And it was a, really quite a conference. We had the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood come out, and uh, Dr. Denny Burke and Dr. Colin Smothers spoke. I had the privilege of speaking as well. And there was a ton of questions. And, and what it revealed is there's a ton of fear and a ton of uncertainty. And, and sometimes when we live life, we think, man, can I have any peace? Can I have any joy? Well, what John tells us today is not only can we have peace and joy we can have confidence knowing that our eternity is secure in Jesus that that we can trust in him we can believe the witness enjoy eternal life God hears our prayers we're going to see 
John ends this letter with a bang. He's giving all of the applications of everything he had taught. And so let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to go pretty much the whole chapter from verse 6 all the way down to the end of the book, verse 21. Beginning in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Might have thrown you for a loop. I couldn't find my ESV Bible right before church, so I was reading from the New American Standard. And if you were following along up there, it was different. I'm just testing you, just keeping you on your toes. So uh, don't mind that too much. I'll, we'll be working through this today. Um, I want to just pray again before we begin. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Would you encourage the hearts of your children? I don't know what they've been through this week. I don't know what burdens they carry into here. But we have a great confidence, this passage says, that when we ask you, we will get an answer if it's according to your will. That you hear us. That you delight for us to draw near to you. That you've given your Son and you've poured out your Spirit. And we are your children. And we are secure in your hand. And so comfort your people, your children, my brothers and sisters. Encourage them by this word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've broken this, I've broken this passage up really into two sections. Verses 6 to 12 which is just we can believe the witness and enjoy eternal life. There's this great confidence that we have the the evidence before us that we've seen over and over, and when we believe it, we can enjoy eternal life. We don't have to fear that we got it wrong. And the second major section 
is in verses 13 to 21, which is the, the confidence and characteristics of a child of God. If you are believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of God, and you can have great confidence because these things are true about you. So we're going to finish up the letter looking at this, but first we see that John says in verse 6, this is the one, Jesus, who came by water and blood. Not with water only, but with water and with blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And when you hear this word testifies, that the Spirit is a, a witness, uh, the word martus, uh, martyr, comes from it. And the idea of a martyr was they gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus and eventually it was to the point of death. So they were killed. But the idea was they were bearing witness it happens nine times, by the way, in this book. I didn't list them all out because I got to get through 20, you know, 15 verses. But, but if you go back and look, nine times in the, gospel, in the epistle, 1 John, he says this is a witness, a testimony concerning who Jesus is. John is very concerned about giving testimony that this gospel is true. In fact, he started the epistle with, his own eyewitness testimony. Do you remember that? Back in 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning? What we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we've seen and testify, there's the word, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. And what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What an incredible thought. John says, hey, brothers and sisters, I know you're, you're worried about if you're believing the right things, if you, if you were listening to the right things, if you're holding on to the right things, but let me remind you, John says, I was an eyewitness. I walked with Him for three years. I saw Him. I touched Him. And all these things concerning Jesus, the word of life, was manifested to us and we're proclaiming it to you. And if you're believing it, you have the Son and you have the life. Incredible. Now back to chapter 5. This is a kind of a fascinating section here, verses 6 to 8. Uh, this, this reality that Jesus is the Son of God, what is the testimony? Well, these three, verse 7, that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And this phrase, the water and the blood, there's been a, a diversity of understandings about this in church history. For example, the Reformers in uh, the 16th century, the 1500s, believed that water and blood referred to baptism, water, and the Lord's Supper, blood. And that the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are the witness that testify that Jesus is the Son of God. In the past tense, they would argue, speaking of a historical event, and perhaps that could be the case. Augustine, uh, the church father who lived in the 4th century, the 300s, believed it referred to John 19 when Jesus' side was pierced with the spear and the water and blood flowed. Now, I don't think that one's the most compelling because it doesn't make sense that that. Uh, Jesus came by a spear thrust, the water and the blood, so it kind of doesn't make sense in the context. The, the third, most scholars today believe it refers to water, 
not our baptism, but Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, and blood, Jesus' crucifixion, which I think fits the context of 1 John the best because it's defending the humanity of Jesus. You remember earlier he had said, who is the Antichrist, the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh? And the two things that testify that Jesus is really a man who came in the flesh is that he was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, and he went to the cross and he died, was crucified. And then Spirit, of course. The witness of the Spirit is needed because Jesus' deity is a stumbling block. It takes the Spirit of God to, to open our eyes to understand the truth. In fact, Jesus said this in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And the Spirit speaks through the Word, convicting the heart. Isn't that how we came to faith? Jesus no longer became a curse word to us. He no longer was just somebody in ancient history who people talk about. <coughs> he, he became, as it were, by faith, the Spirit of God working on our hearts that we see Him for who He really is. He's the Son of God. The One who died for our sins. Who, who died to pay the penalty that we should have paid. And not only that, He gave us His righteousness so that we could be declared saints and holy. And in Him. You see, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. And so John says, verse 7, these three agree. I'm sorry, verse 8. The three are in agreement. Now, now the reason John says that is he's quoting the, the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 19 that says, a matter of testimony has to be established by two or three witnesses. And so John is appealing to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, and he says, hey, let me give you three witnesses to who Jesus is. The water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. His baptism, where the Spirit of God descended and set onto Him like a dove and the Father's voice came out of heaven and said, this is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The crucifixion, where it turned dark. Midnight in the middle of the day from noon to three when Jesus was hanging upon the cross. The very creation itself. That's why the Roman soldier standing there said, surely this is the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit who's come at Pentecost who with the New Covenant tells us, assures us in our hearts that yes, Jesus is the Son of God. John is teaching that the Spirit, the water, and the blood are focused on the same point and work together to testify to the same result. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then verses 9 to 12, he says, we have eternal life. And this eternal life is in the Son. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. What is the testimony of men? <coughs> Jesus is not the Son of God. He's a good teacher. He had a lot of good advice. He was a kind person. Today we don't... Uh, deny his humanity so much as we deny his deity in the early church they denied his humanity because they thought flesh was evil so how could he really be human that's what john was dealing with in first john but the testimony of god is greater the testimony of god these three that are bearing witness he says in verse 9 is that the father himself has testified concerning his son so not only are there three witnesses now we have a fourth 
God the Father testifying concerning His own Son. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself by nature of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant. And the one who does not believe has made him, God, to be a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. John makes a very bold statement here. He's saying if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're calling God a liar. To reject the witness is to deny the truthfulness of God. That He's spoken and acted deliberately with clarity and the testimony is there. It wasn't done in a corner. The witness is been testified to the whole world and it has to be accepted or rejected it can't be ignored and explained away that's why john had said back in chapter 2 verse 22 who is the liar but the one who denies that jesus is the christ this is the antichrist the one who denies the father and the son whoever denies the son does not have the father and the one who confesses the son has the father also now, I love how John throughout the book has been almost like a, a circling back around. It's like when you talk on the porch and it's very stream of consciousness and you start a conversation and a topic and then you wander off to another topic and then you come back around to the first topic and maybe talk about it some more and go back. This is what John is doing with all of these themes in chapter 5. And he's saying that, yes, there are those that deny that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore are proving or calling God a liar, but He's not concerned about the church this way because back in chapter 2, verse 24, He said, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And back in chapter 5, as He continues, He says, um, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son so he's talking about abiding in the father and having this life and then he says verse 12 he who has the son has the life this is really encouraging because i think one of the great temptations of satan is to get you to think that you may not have the life maybe you've done something really bad this week Maybe you've sinned in such a way that you think, man, a Christian wouldn't do that. I know I'm believing that Jesus died for my sins, but maybe I sinned one too many times. And it's understandable that we would think that way because that's how human relationships are. Maybe with your parent, your, your dad, your mom, you, 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 just, you just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and it was one time too many and they said, get out. Or maybe a coworker or a boss. And they're done with you. They've just, they haven't murdered you, but they've cut you out. They've canceled you. Cancel culture is not new, by the way. You remember what Peter said to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, I'm going to be super spiritual here. If my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? Thinking he was doing a good job, right? Man, it wasn't once or twice. Like, I'm going to give him more than a third chance. How about Seven? Of course, Jesus says, how about 70 times 7? In other words, as many times as it takes. Credible. John here says, if you have the Son, you have 
the life he's wanting them to know because he's going to say just in the very next verse by the way these things i've written to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know you have the eternal life john is incredibly pastoral he knows that these people don't always have a certainty and so he wants to assure their hearts If you're believing in the name of the Son of God, you have the life. I'm reminded of Romans 10, 9, the verse that brought me to the Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Not you might be saved. Not you'll be saved if you do enough good deeds and you you don't mess up too bad. No, if you believe, you shall be saved. Period. The life is in His Son and in no other. This is this great witness that the Spirit of God is giving, God the Father is giving, the life and ministry of Jesus is testifying to from His baptism to His crucifixion to His resurrection. And then John goes on to say, and when you know this, when you believe this, you can have great confidence that you're a child of God. And then he says, let me describe to you what it looks like to be a child of God. Verse 13, first, you can know that you have eternal life. It's John's reason for writing the entire letter. This should strengthen your faith in Jesus. Not because you're so great, but because He's so great. It was finished upon that cross, like we sang. Don't we have to preach that to our hearts? That, that we get shaken because of our lives and we begin to think, well, maybe Jesus died for all the sins except for this really bad one I did this week. And I'm still believing Him, but man, think about what that says. Oh, does He have to go die again? He died for all the sins except for that one and now he's got to die again? When he said it was finished, what did he mean? It's finished. So you can know you have eternal life, verse 13. Verses 14 to 17, when you know it, what is your response? You confidently go to your Father in prayer. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have before Him, the Father. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now this is an incredible reality that we who have believed in Jesus have access to a holy God. The one who should judge us, should cast us out of His presence, says no, draw near. Come near, ask me anything you want. Have confidence boldness the author of hebrews talks about this in hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 you can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence and find what grace and mercy to help in your time of need why is this true because jesus has been our substitute and he went before us and brought his blood in the presence of god the author of hebrews says and he's able to save to the uttermost what does it look like to have confidence boldness this weekend king charles was uh, the coronation of king charles happened 
for us a once in a lifetime event. I mean, I don't know that if he lives as long as his mom, we'll never make it because they're going to outlive us all. It's amazing how long that family lived. But what's incredible is they're in Westminster Abbey. They have all of the pageantry and history and whatever you think about that. What's, it was a remarkable thing to see. No one there had any confidence to approach the king in the middle of that. Could you imagine that if someone broke that protocol and thought they could just walk right up to the king during that coronation? But what if that king decided that one of his grandchildren, what if one of his grandchildren just ran on up and interrupted the procession? And the king just picked up that grandchild in his arms and said, and gave him a hug and a kiss and was happy. Why? Because of who that child is to the king. It's not just anybody. It's his grandson or his granddaughter. Who are we to the king of kings? To God Almighty. We're his children. And he says, draw near to me. Come, ask me whatever you want. Do you remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3? Paul's praying for the Ephesian church and he says, oh, that you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is so that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on and just starts praising God. And he says, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. Now what's funny is that Greek word that's there doesn't exist in Greek literature. Paul made it up. And what he did was he just slammed a bunch of adjectives, prepositions on the front of that word to say exceedingly abundantly above all. What he's saying is God's able to do more than you can ask or think. You can't ask or think too much because He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. Now to Him be glory and praise forever. What an incredible thought that when we go to our Father, not only does He hear us, that's the temptation to think that our prayers bounce off the ceilings that He doesn't hear us. No, He hears us. We're always heard because we're always loved because we're a child of God. But not only does He hear us, He answers our prayers according to His will. And if He doesn't answer what we ask, it's because He's going to give us something better. And we don't perceive that always. And sometimes it's a wait. And sometimes it's a no because what we're asking for would harm us and not help us. But we can have confidence in His character. I've often told people, when you don't understand why God is doing what He's doing, you can trust who He is. He's your Father in Heaven who's a good Father. And He has your best interest in mind. How do I know He has your best interest in mind? Well, John says, chapter 4, God is love. And He proved it by giving His best when we were at our worst. He gave His Son. And Paul says in Romans, if He didn't spare His own Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? That's why Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And not only that, He poured out His Spirit so that you would know it. The Spirit of God sheds His Father's love abroad in our hearts. John says you can be confident in prayer. You can come with boldness. And God 
answers our prayers freely and never considers our coming shameful. Isn't that wonderful? I'm not a dad like that. I have teenagers. I'm definitely not a dad like that. Right? So when the teenagers make dumb decisions and mistakes and maybe adult children sitting in the back row make dumb decisions and mistakes and they come, you know, they might be ashamed and I might think, yeah, you should be ashamed. Look at what you did. Our Father in Heaven never does that. See, the reason we're kept waiting is not because we need to get His attention, not because He's uninterested, but that He's determined as our Father that we need to wait patiently. Now moving on, He says, we know He hears us, verse 15. We know that we have the request which we've asked of Him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Then he makes this statement in verse 16, which is probably one of the most difficult statements to understand in the Bible. That's why Jason said, Ryan, why don't you preach on that verse instead of me? There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. Now, again, you read the commentaries. There's been four main views of this. And and, and I'll be honest, last time I preached it, I had a different view. So you're going to get the view I have today. Uh, It definitely is not a hill to die on, but here's what the, the commentaries say. First, it could be a specific deadly sin. In other words, the view, this view maintains that there are certain sins, if you commit them, they're unforgivable. Instantly deadly. And although the Old Testament does have a distinction between lesser sins and greater sins, and it might apply here, I don't find that likely in the context of 1 John because he's talking about the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. So that's one view. The second view is physical death. In other words, think Ananias and Sapphira. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. God struck them dead. That was the last time I preached it. That's what I took. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, is the third view. It's kind of like um, maybe Ananias and Sapphira are the physical death example of that. But in Matthew 13, 32, Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so maybe this is an instant physical death, but this is a spiritual death casting out forever. And the last view is this idea of a total rejection of the Gospel. Plummer in his commentary says, it's possible to close the heart against the influences of God's Spirit so obstinately and persistently that repentance becomes a moral impossibility. So this afternoon, this is what I'm holding for now on this. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. But it's because in 1 John 2.19, turn over there what John says. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. And so today anyway, I'm leaning towards what John is referring back to as the own, his own context of chapter 2 of these people who went out from 
the body who were false teachers who were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh, who were antichrists, and they have committed this sin leading to spiritual death, this total rejection of Jesus in the gospel. Don't pray for them. However we take it, the emphasis in the verse, look back at the verse itself. This, this comment about a sin leading to death is bookended by, oh, actually, there's, there's sin that doesn't lead to death. Do pray for that. If anyone, verse 16, sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. And then verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. So the emphasis is not trying to figure out what in the world is this sin that leads to death. I mean, you all in this room haven't done it because you're still alive if it's physical. That's how I took it last time. No, I think what John's getting at is, no, we do pray for one another, especially in the midst of committing sins. Because when we pray, God hears us and God answers and God works. And I think it's tied back to what he had said in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So what does Jesus do in the midst of our sin? He prays for us. What should we do when we see our brothers and sisters sinning? Pray for them. And God hears. God is given the Son and the Spirit as those who advocate and pray on our behalf and now as brothers and sisters who love one another, who are in Jesus, the Son, we pray for one another in the midst of sin. What a wonderful thing it is. The worst thing we could do in the midst of sin is judge one another. We do speak the truth in love. We do say, Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, when you see your brother committing a trespass, restore them in a spirit of gentleness lest you too be tempted. But you remember Jesus when the rich man and Lazarus, the, the, the Lazarus, the, the man who was aware of his sin, is beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisees like, thank God I'm not like that guy. And then what happens in that story? Lazarus is in Abraham's womb and the Pharisee is in hell. John says, I mean, we've seen it over and over in, in this uh, letter that we're to love one another, that we're to, we're to serve one another, we're to, we're to live out all of the one another's of the Bible and here it's praying for one another. What a privilege. James 5.20 says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James says, you go, you go pursue your brothers and sisters when they're in their sin. I think this is really, really tough to do at times because our instinct is when we see our brother or sister sinning, we want to we shrink away. We want to pull back rather than lean in. It, it's almost like we, we, we know that we sin. We want people to, to draw near to us in the midst of our sin to encourage us. 
I mean, sometimes we don't. We want to hide in it for a season. But if we love the Lord, no, we don't want to continue doing it. But then we think, man, I don't want to get too near that. When one of the most loving things you can do in the midst of your brother or sister sinning is to, to lean in, to be present, to listen, to pray, to walk alongside. That's why John continues in the letter to say, verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins. And here our English language is a little bit deficient in its grammar to, to, to talk about what the Greek is doing here. Because we might understand this to mean somehow that, well, gosh, if we're born of God, then why would we even pray for people who sin? Because we don't sin. That's what it says. He, we know that no one who is born of God sins. But the Greek verbs here are talking about a continual characterizing of sin. John had already dealt with this at the beginning. We know John's not a schizophrenic, and he said that I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And the very next sentence, oh, by the way, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So what is John getting at? Well, the Greek present tense has this aspect of continual ongoing sin that characterizes a person. And those who are born of God, yeah, they may sin, but it's not the characteristic of their lifestyle. What do I mean by that? Someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's a thief, can be so characterized by that that their identity is they're a thief or a drunkard or an immoral person. But when you know Jesus, that's no longer your identity. You may still steal because you're tempted to do those same sins you did before, but you're a thief no longer. Now you're in Jesus. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. Such were some of you. And the list there in 1 Corinthians 6, man, that'll blister your eyeballs it says such were some of you but now what you're washed you're sanctified you're justified in the name of the lord our god incredible what we have in jesus and john's not writing anything different in verse 18 he says here's why the one who is born of god the child of god no longer as a lifestyle will continue to sin in the same way because he the son who was born of god keeps him our Savior keeps us in verse 18. We know this. Jesus is the one born of God who makes sure that we don't continue in a lifestyle of sin. John Stott in his commentary, listen to what he says. The devil does not touch the Christian because the Son keeps him. And so because the Son keeps him, the Christian does not persist in sin. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What a comfort to know when we look at this world that's lying in the power of the evil one and we're tempted to... He had talked about it earlier about, hey, all that's in the world, don't love it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, those things are fading away. And it's in the power of the evil one. But you're not. You're in the power of Christ. You're, you're held by God. You're kept by Him. And so you don't have to follow those things. You could say no to those things. And when we preached on that, it was the way we do that is not by somehow spiritual push-ups, sola bootstrappa, picking ourselves up by our feet, as somehow doing, you know, just Nike theology, just do it. No. 
We're trusting in a superior love of Jesus. We love Him more than we love our sin. He's more precious to us. And when we see Him for who He is, in His sufficiency, in His supremacy, all of that sin does not entice us anymore. He's more beautiful. He's more glorious. He's worthy of our lives. And that pales in comparison. That's why we have to preach the Gospel to our hearts over and over and over. Verse 20, it's why John closes this letter and says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Well, what understanding is that, John? That we may know Him who is true, the Father. And we're in Him who is true, and we're in His Son, Jesus Christ. John ends the letter not with an imperative, but simply this reality that that here's what we have. Jesus came to give us understanding about ultimate reality, and that is we are in the Father and in the Son because of what the Son has done for us at the cross. And that will be the motive of no longer sinning. Not continuing in sin. True believers are given this insight. And then he just pleads with them in verse 21. My dear little children, guard yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. It may appear that John's final address is somewhat anticlimactic, but in reality it confirms an important truth that he's been talking about in the last half of the letter. Reject the false and embrace the real. You see, idols are a pale imitation of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. See, idols, they're, they're functional saviors that never save and they never deliver. They offer it. They say, oh, we're going to make you happy. We're going to give you joy. We're going to give you freedom. And what happens? doesn't matter if it's pick your poison of the addictions of the world that are false idols. They don't save. They don't deliver. They ensnare. They trap they dominate and they cause you to despair. Who is the one who has life and has it abundantly? Only the Son. And we are in Him. And so he just pleads with him. He says, don't go back to the fake. To use the words of C.S. Lewis, why would you eat mud pies in the slum when a holiday at sea is waiting for you? When a banquet on the ocean, the best kind of spread, right? Like on a cruise ship. And not during COVID, right? I think it was really bad. I don't know. I didn't take a cruise during COVID, but you just, this buffet that is amazing from world-class chefs is awaiting you and you say, nah, let me go make my own little mud pies here in the trash heap. That's what John says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What does a life marked by joy look like? I just want to remind you of all of these five statements that John makes. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. See, he's writing these things to promote our joy. That's how he starts the letter. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you 
so that you may not sin. You see, sin steals our joy. The reason he writes this way is he says, I want you to have complete joy. And what sin does is it steals your joy. And it steals your assurance of salvation. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. False teachers steal our joy. They try to give us a Jesus plus theology or a Jesus minus theology. We saw in the previous book of Galatians that it was Jesus plus works. Here it's a Jesus minus approach of Gnosticism. Denying that Jesus came in the flesh. And then he ends it with chapter 5, verse 13 that we read a minute ago. I've written these things that you may know you have eternal life. Doubt and lack of assurance steals our joy. And John has written this letter to provide assurance that if we believe the gospel, we're part of the family. We are children of God and we don't have to fear and doubt that we'll ever lose that fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this time. As we come to your table now, would you, would you encourage the hearts of your children? You love them and you've demonstrated it by giving your son. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.